Well, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to our next episode of the DSEFs podcast. And we're going to have so much fun today. Uh, and I'm so grateful uh, for the team at Squire joining us today when we started talking about getting your finances and taxes in order as you run and scale direct selling companies. I wanted to invite this team here because uh, Squire as an agency is so much more than just tax calculation software. When we, we work with them and integrate them into platforms for clients, they have advisory services and have been an asset to many clients as they've scaled their companies. And so with that, I wanna go ahead and just read some intros before we pass the call uh, to Gail. If you're brand new on this session, if this is the first time you're listening to a DSEF uh, podcast, um, DSEF is a free invite only forum for direct selling executives only. So if you have not yet um, accepted your invite to the forum from the person who invited you to be here today, uh, you can go to LinkedIn and search for Direct Selling Executive Forum, or you can go to directsellingexecutiveforum.com and apply there to be in the group. Uh, first off on the call, we have Joe Hillstead. Uh, Joe is a partner in Squire's tax department and has been with Squire since 2014. Joe has 17 years of experience working with clients on a broad range of tax issues. He specializes in corporate income tax matters, U.S. taxation of international transactions, and consolidated returns. Joe, thank you so much for making the time to be out here today. Yeah, glad to be on, man. I got to say my my favorite, just because of the time I've gotten to spend uh, with with uh, Squire, I, I get to work with uh, Shara more than others with the team. And so we're so grateful that Shara joined the call. You all that customer experience comes in through your implementation teams. And and uh, Shara Sumnall is the manager in Squire's sales tax department. So this is usually what you're looking for in a direct selling company, gang. You're just trying to say, how do we make sure we stay in compliance with our sales tax? So, and she is, was integral in the development of Squire's sales tax practice and works with the sales tax team to advise clients with multi-state sales tax obligations. And that's right. Those are real obligations. If you didn't have to pay those state taxes, Jeff Bezos wouldn't be paying them. And so if he has to pay them, you got to pay them. And <laughs> we're talking about this stuff, gang. So all right, Shara also assists in the onboarding process of new tax clients and agent registration, filing and support responsibilities for these clients. Thank you so much, Shara, for being here today. Thanks, Ben. Always a pleasure to chat with you and connect and happy to be here today to talk about our work. All right. Well, with that, uh, Gail, I'm going to go ahead and pass the rest of the episode to you. You've got the questions in from the forum members, and we'll be able to walk us through. So let's go ahead and get started. All right. Welcome to the DSEF, everybody. And today we'll talk about creating a winning cash flow and tax strategy in direct sales. As an entrepreneur in the direct selling industry, understanding your cash flow and tax obligations is crucial for maintaining financial stability and maximizing mm -hmm. your profits. And our first question is, where do we start exactly? What are the first steps that you would invite a corporate team to take as they prepare to create a framework for their company to have a winning cash flow strategy? Uh, let's see, I'll, I'll, I'll take that, Gail, uh, to start off with, right? Um, I, I'm, I'm gonna give an old adage of what I tell my clients, so I hope I don't sound like your grandpa when I say this. <laughs> You know, um, there's an old adage, I, I think, in finance accounting that that goes something along the lines of uh, revenue is vanity, profit is sanity, and cash is king. Mm. And that's something I, I think really important to, to keep in mind as, you know, as we think about uh, cash flow from uh, from the direct selling perspective, right, is is um, a, a lot of us, a lot of direct selling companies look at their financials and look obviously at top line revenue 
And, and then next we'll look at EBITDA, earnings before income taxes, interest, depreciation, and amortization. And you know that that EBITDA gives us the sanity in that old adage that I've talked about, but then cash flow is king, right? And we see a lot of our direct selling clients that uh, you know go through the hockey stick, so to speak, of revenue, uh, mm-hmm. especially right out right off the bat, and may have positive EBITDA. Uh, and and you know we we like to see a healthy direct selling company have a twenty percent plus EBITDA number. That's mm. hey, we'd love to get to that goal, right? Fifteen to twenty percent EBITDA number is a good number that we say, yeah, we're, we're strong and healthy, right? If, if you can get net income, right, that's that's revenue minus all expenses somewhere in that range, then, then boy, you're in, you're in great shape. But generally, we want to look mm-hmm. at an EBITDA number somewhere in that 15 to 20%, uh, 15 to 20% of revenue, what I mean, net sales, uh, obviously. But then, uh, you know, we, we also want to look at your statement of cash flows. When you think of the three financial statements, your balance sheet, your income statement, and the cash flow statement, that statement is, is typically overlooked, especially in the direct selling space. And so mm-hmm. we want you to look at that that and see what is your cash flow from operations, right? Because sometimes we see strong, strong revenue growth. That's the, that's the vanity. We see positive EBITDA. That's the sanity. But we'll see negative cash flow from operations. And that's where cash is king, right? And typically we see that a lot in growing direct selling companies that are investing all of their profit back into inventory. Um, You know, they are just reinvesting that. Well, it could be inventory, it could be new markets, it could be lots of other places. And so, right, we'll see this negative cash flow. And, And that's okay for a time, Right as as we have to keep up with growth, sure. um, you know, where we where we start to see um, that not happening is where, especially when revenue starts to dip and our costs are still going up, and you know that's where we get in trouble. You know, starting a framework, Gail, like like you mentioned, it's really when you do your monthly financial close, are you looking at those key performance indicators? Uh, of course, top line, of course, EBITDA, right? We're going to look at commissions as a percentage of sales. Are you within a sustainable range? Many of our clients we see don't realize that maybe their commission expense as a percentage of revenues in the 50, 60% because of uh, of sales, because of, of uh, promotions and things like that. And, and that can obviously lead to cash flow deficiencies in operations. And we don't want to be in that area. You know, I'm so I'm so happy you shared that, Joe. We like doing book recommendations in the DSEF for a lot of the executives that watch. And and as you were speaking, you reminded me of Vern Harnish's work with scaling up, the classic of just of how to win when scaling. And he talks about how, hey, businesses suck cash. He's like, they suck it up. They're gonna eat it all up, you know. And the catch. And so to your point, when folks are not looking at their cash numbers and they're in the vanity of, well, look, our revenue grew by 20% this month over last month, they they might have trouble ahead. And so it's that 
It's that that thought of like saying, are you looking at the right numbers? In, in addition, you mentioned KPIs. You know, the DSEF published a report on what KPIs are making a difference for executives in a decision-making framework earlier this year. That's had a ton of great feedback. There's peers from huge direct selling companies and little tiny ones who've said, wow, this helped our team make decisions through the dysfunction we have in operating together, which all executive teams have some dysfunction. Gail, that's a note just because Joe listed that. Let's make sure we put that in the show notes. Let's make sure people can access the DSEF's uh, report on KPIs. Phenomenal, phenomenal stuff, Joe. Thank you so much. Let's go to the next question from the forum. Okay, the next question is, what elements are musts for creating a cash flow strategy for a company to win long-term? We talked about looking at KPIs. What are other elements that you think are important uh, in creating a cash flow strategy? I've got three items that come to mind, and I'm, I'm definitely interested in Shara's thoughts uh, on these two. So creating a winning cash flow strategy, number one is managing inventory, uh, especially in growth, right? And and obviously, Shara and I come from a finance and accounting background, and, and those um, direct selling executives that come from the operations, this is going to sound like a little bit of, of nails on the chalkboard. Because mm -hmm. our operation folks are going to say, we need to make sure that we've got enough inventory on hand and we need to, to, to stock for the future. While your accountants are going to come in and say, can we do just in time? Can we reduce inventory? Because we, uh, it, you know, it, we have cash tied up in the form of inventory and, and that's, that's, you know, hurting us, I think, from a financial uh, accounting perspective. Right. But again, the operations folks are going to be like, you know, there's this tension that happens between us accountants and, and the operation folks on your on your team, right? And there's there's probably a happy medium uh, in coming up with ways that are going to ma maintain positive cash flow, but still allow the operations folks to sleep at night and be able to serve a distributor and customer customer demands. All right. Second category is commissions, right? Taking a deep dive into your commission plan and analyzing it, right? Uh, I was at a client just uh, just last week and we put together a common size P&L for them. And we, we, we took their P&L and each item on their P&L was the percentage of their revenue. And we compared it to industry standards, right? We collect uh, publicly traded companies, financial data, right? From the new skins and the herbal lives and the life advantages of the world, right? And we aggregate that data and come up with kind of what we see as an industry average and we compare it, right? And I, you know, generally we see um, commissions as a percentage of revenue, for example, while we're in the second category of commissions to be in the high 30s, maybe low 40s in the high range, right? But we saw that, that their commission plan was especially rich, um, they were in the 50s and in some months got 60s due to some, some promotions, some incentives and things like that, and was really decreasing profitability significantly. And, and until we looked at it, didn't realize it, right? They, I think they knew that the commission plan was rich and hoping that, that there would be significant sales driven off of that, that very plan. But they said, boy, we need to go to our, you know, the drafters of our commission plan and, and really tweak some things to make sure that we are, we're not selling the farm or giving away the farm, so to speak. Last category that I'll, I'll, I'll speak to is then is, is examining uh, the percentage of merchant reserves. Sometimes that can be point or two or three in, in allowing for profitability and for, for cash flow is, is managing 
those merchant reserves, which is kind of well known in, in the industry, of course. So uh, th those are the three areas that that come to mind. So share any any additional thoughts on on your perspective, uh, probably from a sales tax perspective. Yeah, Joe, thanks. My day in and day out is sales tax, which, you know, in the macro view is a kind of micro area. But when you get into that micro area and it's your day in and day out, it's pretty vast in, in and of itself. And so where companies, especially if they're a startup, are looking at their costs, the things that can go most wrong are not doing it right and having a massive amount of risk, right? Or maybe overspending on software tools or, or resources that kind of aren't delivering what's needed. So I try to be aware of that as I help um, really legacy cl like clients that have been with us for years as they're changing their business models and adjusting to current, if we can call them post-pandemic business conditions now, um, trying to modify their strategies, um, making sure we're keeping up with uh, revisiting their sales tax nexus and their systems as people are moving now into, well, I'm going to go sell on Shopify. Mm -hmm. That's a pretty big change when it comes to, say, how you've set up your systems and structured your sales tax automation to lower costs. So I, I hope that helps. But I, I've seen instances where clients yeah. really overspend yeah. on sales tax solutions that don't hit the mark. Um, and companies who don't put the due diligence to doing it right and are, are opening themselves up to a lot of potential risk. Yeah, and I, I think I want to add to that, Sharon, right, is that um, direct selling companies that aren't man managing cash flow, usually in kind of huge growth, you know, hyper growth type of thing, um, and will come to, you know, sales are off the charts. Um, that's all being reinvested into, into inventory, but there's this cash crunch. And I think many times uh, direct selling companies may be tempted to not remit sales tax, which is cardinal sin, you know, number one, never, never mm -hmm. do that. Uh, of course, right? Sales tax is a trust fund tax. Um, if you don't remit sales tax, potentially states can pierce the corporate veil go after owner's assets. So, I mean, that is, you know, so don't, don't fall into that temptation. I know, you know, uh, folks associated with the DCF, I know that's, that's probably never on their radar, but just a reminder. One of the, the first point you brought up, Joe, I think so important about the inventory as well, that battle of some of the functions between the ops, people wanting to be prepared for hockey stick growth, and then what that does to cash flow. And I'm going to go back to another book recommendation just because it helps people stay on the same page as leaders. It's a oldie but a goodie. If you haven't read The Goal uh, with uh, by Eli Goldratt, all right, it's a classic about inventory and understanding the cost of inventory that's just sitting there on the table that's not cash to a business and its efficiency. And so if you if you do get into an argument with your executive team over implementing what Joe said on point number one, go have them read the goal and see if it changes their mind. Um, it's a great fun uh, story about a plant manager um, for a automobile parts uh, company, and it will help you open your eyes to work in inventory and, and what's not actual cash um, in your business. And I, you know, I wanted to second what you just said. You, you don't, you can't just close your eyes to sales tax folks. Like I, I have heard 
clients even come to us as a software provider for, you know, with my role at Naxum and say, well, we're in Texas or we're in Colorado. So we'll just, we'll just pay state tax for the people who buy in our state and people out of the state, you know, we don't have to worry about them. And that, that advice is old, uh, very, very old. Uh, the internet's changed. It's not, it's not, there is nexus to every single state. What, what, what Shara and Joe are saying is, you can tell yourself if you want to feel that way and go out there and try that, but it's not going to work. And as soon as you get any kind of growth, someone's going to notice, and then you're going to be in trouble. And so it's better to just get set up from the right from the beginning, grow your business the way you can so that you can win. Gail, it's good. What's the next one from the forum? Love these questions people are bringing in. Go ahead. Now that we've talked about the must for creating the cash flow strategy, let's talk about what pitfalls they have to look out for. Uh, what what are some pitfalls that you've seen over the last year that you would encourage corporate teams to avoid? Yeah, I'll I'll start with that one, Gail. Right, um, you know, 2020 and 2021 were really interesting in the direct selling space, right? I think generally as a whole, the the industry saw some significant increases in sales, and uh, that was a great thing, right? There were there. Were folks at home that wanted to to uh, start their at-home business. They had some extra time to really run that. Uh, you know, as as we roll into 2022 and 2023, I, I think generally as a whole, we've seen um, a slowdown in sales, at least in compared, comparison to 2020 uh, and 2021. And, you know, we we found that, you know, direct selling companies, their revenue line is going like this, and then maybe it starts to turn. And, you know, our cost lines kind of parallel to the revenue and when it hits, but when it, you know, takes that downturn and costs are still exceeding uh, revenue, right? That's, that's kind of the point in time that we um, really get nervous. And that's kind of the, the pitfall. And so being able to, to plan for that. And so that when your revenue line and your cost line, you know, take the same turn when you plan for that, that's, that's, I think one of the biggest things that we've seen our direct selling clients not being able to be as agile enough. Um, and, and so I think that's one of the pitfalls that I see from a cash flow uh, perspective. Um, and so, uh, you know, of, of course, there are methods right there uh, of of kind of helping and assisting with some of those pitfalls, like um, like paying your suppliers later, right? Um, and, and it's always a good thing to communicate that to suppliers, right? We don't want to ruin relationships, of course, but if we can if we can extend payment terms on the purchase of inventory or supplies or anything like that, that's that's a cash flow benefit, right? But if you do if you take that method, I would always be communicative to your suppliers and indicate, look, we're going through a revenue reduct, you know, reduction. Maybe we're, you know, you know, the seasonality of direct selling, uh, you know, takes place where we're, we're he heading into summer right now, typically June, July, August are a little bit slower as people are on vacation and, you know, things kind of ramp back up back in September and October when we, when we get back into school. Right. And so, um, uh, th that's a way to help in, in, in cash flow, right? Managing inventory. We've already met, we, we've already talked about that, trying to go to a just in time inventory model so that we're paying cash for inventory just in time so that we don't have cash tied up in, in, in inventory type of things. Right. Um, you know, ultimately 
you know, we're in business to to generate a profit, right? And uh, and one of the things about direct selling is that there's there's so much potential to make owner distributions, of course. But and that's one of the first things that we look at is owners distributions. You know, uh, in managing cash flows is is a piece of it uh, on top of that. So. Gail, ho- hopefully that answers uh, the, the the question. Those are some of the three just off the top of my head that I, that I can think of uh, with respect to to pitfalls. Thank you for that. Uh, what about Sierra? Do you have any uh, thoughts on the matter? Um, I think I stepped into pitfalls ahead of the question, so I already talked about you know, the two big areas that I see um, clients kind of struggling with, um, and also the business changes of the last few years and how people are looking for for strategies to lower costs, maybe operationally with their online sales set up and different platforms. But again, those come, all those platforms come with, you know, details with how they're handling tax and market facilitator, marketplace facilitator rules and laws. So it's a different landscape for sales tax post Wayfair. Um, And often clients um, can easily confuse those Wayfair economic nexus rules with direct selling rules. So um, be very clear if you are now in a place where you're calling your independent distributors affiliates, how you're defining an affiliate and what the nexus rules are for affiliates. They're still soliciting sales, Joe. So they're not, I can't point to very many instances where calling distributors affiliates really changes the um, the nexus requirements for companies. So just something to be aware of. You know, this is such a really a good point, Char. I, there's this uh, video from uh, Alex Hermosi of all people. So I'll just, I'll just say this, so that we kind of went viral across YouTube of this idea of so many people spend so much time trying to like wiggle their way around tax law or energy, wiggling their way around saving money on this tax or that tax. And he was like the real value, you know, it's a young man, grew his business over, he's over a hundred million dollar valuation. He's younger than me. He's 32, you know, and, um, and Alex is like the real value as an owner of one of these businesses is equity, right? In the business. And like, you're going to pull cash and yes, you're going to pay taxes and you're going to pay a lot of corporate taxes and you're going to, you're going to pay all those. The point of the video was that, is that know that your real wealth as an owner, or if you're on the executive team and you have equity in your company, like your real, real wealth long-term in running a direct selling company comes in the equity of owning the company and not just in the cash it spins off, gang. Because you, you can get obsessed um, with micromanaging and spending all your time or, or you know, moving to Puerto Rico six months out of the year for no capital gains tax or all this, all this lifestyle stuff that's like, do you, you really want to fly back and forth to your daughter's birthday party so you live in Puerto Rico enough days of the year? Like, like it's, it's, if that's you fine, but like, you don't have to do that. Understand that the real wealth you'll gain over time is equities, not which are not taxable, right. Until you uh, liquidate them, but are not the cash. So that's just something to remember, you know, is that you want to work with professionals that are keeping you in compliance that of course, not paying more than your fair share, but wouldn't your energy be better spent um, in growing the revenue of your business versus trying to wiggle through um, a redefinition of trying to not pay taxes to certain states of your distributor force. That's the, the nice way I of saying so. what Shara said. So. Yeah, so I see, I think okay. Shara was kind of saying that. And I just want to make sure we heard that, guys. It's like, guys and gals who are running these companies, like it's much better to you go spend your energy growing the business than like 
hoping to weasel out of paying the government some state taxes, right? Which, which we just pay them because we have to sell them. Yeah. Big stuff. Yeah. I think Ben to that, you know, that point, that same point, right? We, we, we always want to keep our direct selling company well capitalized, right? And, and having enough working capital in the business so that we don't, we don't run into capital calls or cash crunches that where we're running to increase a line of credit or go to the bank or, you know, those type of things. So maintaining that, that capitalization's uh, important and not getting to this thinly capitalized state, right? And, and it's, it's a balance, right? I mean, um, you know, I generally say compared to other industries, the direct selling industry generally likes to make distributions to owners because there, sure. there's potential so much profit, right? And nothing wrong with that. Nothing mm-hmm. wrong with that at, at all, right? Because there's probably less M&A activity in a direct selling company than there is compared to a technology company or, you know, other uh, other places, right? We, we just don't see the same kind of private equity or venture capital or other deals. Now, I'm not saying that doesn't happen. There, there are plenty yeah. of deals that happen in the direct selling space, right? But uh, one of the ways that owners can get get a return on their investment is through distributions of profit, right? But that, but that maintaining the, the correct layer level of capitalization is important to think about. Do you have a specific like percentage of like month, like is it six months cost of capitalization stays in the business? Like, do you have a rule as a framework that to share with the folks who are watching today? Just yeah, curious. I think, yeah, Ben, you know, I think many banks like a debt to equity ratio of three to one, mm-hmm. right? That's, you know, for every, for $3 of debt on your balance sheet, you got $1 of equity. If we can beat mm-hmm. that, meaning the lower, the better, yeah. the, that's better, right? If we've got $2 of debt for $1 of equity, even better, right? So if we can get into, uh, you know, a less than one where we've got more equity than we've got debt, right? We become very much more bankable. And that's you know, always a positive thing, right? Even though and we typically don't see a lot of debt uh, on the balance sheet of direct selling companies, which is great, right? Uh, you, m- most folks bootstrap this themselves with friends and family and then and then operate on the profit that's, that's generated on that. And so we don't see a, a ton of bank debt or third-party debt on the balance sheet of direct selling companies there. But I, I, I generally see kind of a debt to equity ratio of three or below, Ben, is put you in a, yeah. in a good, solid financial position. That's solid. Thank you so much. All right, Gail, what's the next one we got from the forum? Um, the next question is, when it comes to taxes and tax compliance, which we kind of touched on earlier, what are the key elements that you would suggest each executive team to include in their strategy? Uh, sure, you okay if, if I start out on that? Yeah, go for it, Joe. Yep. <laughs> yeah, I, I, uh, uh, I don't mean to, I feel like I'm butting in line every time. So, um, Gail, you know, in the direct selling space, the first thing that I would get right is, is sales tax. <laughs> and I'll leave that to share. So put put that number one on the list. Second thing that I'd get get right is that I would get right your onboarding process when signing up distributors. Right. Uh, usually, you go to a web website, and distributors will fill out the uh, the distributor agreement, and included in that should be either a copy of a W nine or the equivalent of a W-9, right? I prefer the actual W-9 itself that they fill out and they sign, right? They they indicate their social security number. 
things like that. Um, that this allows you to then, uh, as a direct selling company, go and validate that EIN or social security number uh, from the distributor and match it against IRS records. If it doesn't match against IRS records, we've got a problem because the IRS says, if, if we issue a 1099 without have validated that social security number, we're gonna get a nasty gram from the IRS that says, hey, this, this, this didn't match our records and you know, if this happens enough, you're going to get a really ugly penalty number that is takes a lot of direct selling companies by surprise. And so, getting this onboarding process correct, and right in many instances, maybe our distributors don't have a social security number or a, a an ITIN, an individual taxpayer identification number. In which case, direct selling companies are required to do what's called backup withholding. There's a 24% withholding requirement by the direct selling company if we can't get a valid TIN number, right? So this may seem like kind of kindergarten, preschool when it comes to direct selling, but just a reminder that this process is really important, especially to avoid kind of ugly, ugly penalties that come to many of our direct selling clients, right? Third on the list is, you know, at sales tax first, onboarding and making sure that our 1099 and W9 process is pristine. And then thirdly is usually kind of our income tax strategy, right? What 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 is our choice of entity? Are we a C corp? Are we an LLC? Are we an S corporation? Right, and all that that entails, right? Hey, I'd like to grant equity to certain key employees in the future, which is probably better under a C corporation as opposed to an LLC. Although LLCs have some some methods of granting equity, I plan to expand into Canada or Australia or UK or Southeast Asia or you know mainland Europe. Um, you know, what do I need to know with respect to taxes and what my structure should be? You know, how do I how do I navigate a seamless compensation plan when I'm paying potentially distributors in Canada or UK, those, those type of things, right? Get sales tax right, get your onboarding process right, and then work with professionals to get your income tax strategy right. So Shara, I I butted in the line. So talk talk to us about sales tax. All right, let's do the drill down a little bit into sales tax. So for direct selling executives, uh, you always want to start with Nexus, right? What is the obligation of my company um, to states where, where I'm making sales and selling? We'll just try to simplify this to the old way and the newer way. So the old way, which still applies, is um, there's roughly 17 states that require direct selling companies to um, enter into an agreement with the state where the direct selling company um, collects and remits tax on behalf of the distributors. This is an administrative convenience um, for the distributors when the corporate level entity is taking on that obligation on behalf of the micro businesses. And it's an administrative advantage to the states because they have a corporate entity that's willing to work with them to get the right amount of tax collected and remitted, kind of easier for everyone. So that is still, you know, the baseline um, that's been in place for many years. And companies usually want to extend that to all states because it's just an easier approach to, administ to administer in terms of a sales tax plan or strategy. So starting with Nexus, that's the old, the, the roots of the old system, the newer system, think that people are hearing a lot about and maybe getting a little confused about is the Wayfair rules, 
Wayfair versus South Dakota happened in summer 2018. We're approaching five years of the anniversary of that Supreme Court decision uh, where the, South, the state of South Dakota um, won the right to establish their own state determined amount of economic activity that will link a business to the state. So uh, just to tell the story, I think probably everyone knows, but once South Dakota had that um, green light from the Supreme Court, then all the other states across the country started to follow. I love this information because there's so much confusion around Wayfair. I'm so excited Char is getting into this. This is important for people to understand. Go ahead, Char. Let's see if we got you back. Maybe while Shara's is uh, seeing if we can get, I, I can kind of continue that piece, sure. right? But that, that Wayfair case by the Supreme Court um, implemented a new nexus standard that essentially says if you have certain economic levels, you know, sales in our state, then even though you may, may not have a physical presence in our state at all, you, Wayfair, Amazon, others, yeah. you know, uh, this is, remote this sellers are required to collect and remit sales tax in yeah. our state, right? And, and yeah. in the direct selling space, we have to take both rules in mind. Rule The old rule is that a physical presence, including an independent sales contractor, triggers sales tax nexus. So, and then we say, okay, if, if we don't have an independent contractor in our, in our state, we look to these economic nexus rules that were imposed after the Wayfair case was uh, came into play. So usually direct selling, it's wherever I've got a distributor selling product, I've got sales tax nexus. I should collect and remit sales tax in those states, right? And I think, Ben, to your, your point, right, hey, we're headquartered in Colorado. We'll, we'll collect in Colorado, but we're going to stick our head in, in the ground with respect to everywhere else that that's absolutely the wrong wrong way to go so exactly. uh, the, the thing you know the, the reason why we want sales tax to be the first on your compliance checklist is because it's a trust fund tax right it, it, it it's one of those taxes that we we charge based on the transaction right we collect it from the consumer and we remit it the direct selling company is just an agent, right? It's imposed on the end customer. It's not imposed on us. So it's, it's intended to be a pass-through. But when we get back to cash flow, where it can be a cash flow drain is if we don't do it correctly. You know, our either our, our tax rate calculation engine is, is outdated, not doing it correctly, uh, or we're not doing it at all. And we get, an, we get a state knocking on our door in two years saying, hey, I'm from the state of Texas and I want to take a look at your sales tax. And, and we're going to end up having to cut a big check, which nor, you know shouldn't have been that way, shouldn't have hit our P&L at all. Um, and, and so, you know, that's get that right. Get your onboarding of your distributors correct, including validation of TINs and issuing of 1099s. Get that right. And then, you know, get your income tax strategy the, the way you want it. I'm so grateful for both of you coming out here today. I know we've come to time on the show and the questions we've got to answer today are ones that I still see reoccurring to today uh, in conversations with people. And so I'm, I'm grateful we got to cover them today because it, you, as as those of you are are sitting here, if you find yourself uh, guilty of any of the sins, it's time to go address it now. The sooner you address it to Joan and Shara's point, 
you know, the sooner you're collecting proper sales tax and paying proper sales tax, and then you don't have some negative event on your P&L. And some of these pieces, you know, if you're continuing to grow, right, as a business, or you're, or you're hitting that place where growth is coming down and expenses are going here, you know, some of that industry benchmarking they talked about of saying, hey, we've done the reports. This is how much people spend on technology. This is what they spend on shipping. This is what they spend on incentives. This is what they, they spend on product to uh, cost of goods sold. Like that's really valuable stuff to go through an assessment like that and just understand what you can do better as a business. You know, I've run into that um, in, I could share with you in the software world from my over a decade at Maxim. You know, there's times where people have started as a smaller company where they're in a SaaS platform, where they have lower startup costs and are paying per member for use of a system. And they get to a certain level and it doesn't make sense to keep paying per member. They can buy out their code at that point, own a license and then stop paying per member and have a lower per member cost and have a one-time cash outlay and keep that. I've seen those types of events be very positive things to, to share, to share as note earlier is like you can, sometimes you start at a lower cost in a software and you'll pay more per member in the beginning, you get to a certain level, you can buy out your code and then stop paying per member. So I've seen that type of thing be really helpful and having advisors take a look and share with you other benchmarks um, can, can increase your outcomes in the space. So with that, for those that are uh, watching on YouTube or on LinkedIn on the streams, we are also available on the podcast network. So I'm going to pass the call to close as we as we thank uh, Shara and Joe for being here today uh, to Gail. And Gail, walk us through for those that are on the go and in their cars and want to listen on the go, where can they find the new podcast? Go ahead. The, you can find the DSEF. Yeah podcast on Spotify. We uh, show the video podcast or the audio podcast, and uh, we are also uploading them on YouTube as well as Anchor, uh, Apple Podcasts, and iHeartRadio. And we also do lives every Tuesdays and Thursdays on LinkedIn and Facebook. That's perfect. So if you haven't yet joined the groups, do check in the show notes to get your spot in the DSEF. Joe and Cheryl, it was an absolute pleasure to have you here today. Thank you so much for being on the session. We're grateful to know you and thank you for all that you shared. Have an amazing day, everybody. We'll see you soon. Bye for now. Thanks, bud.